Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 20, we're going to read the whole chapter this morning, Lord willing. Genesis chapter 20. Last time we looked at the importance of affirming God's judgment, that God will judge Even though the wicked mock the idea, and many, unfortunately, many professing believers neglect the doctrine of God's judgment, give it no thought or relevance, and yet by doing so, according to Scripture, we miss out on a very powerful incentive to godliness, that we would turn away from evil, that we would seek to fear the Lord, that we would cultivate that fear of the Lord. It's a a grace that we should want and desire. Just as much as we want to grow in our love for God and our faith in God, our trust and hope in God, our confidence in God, we should want to grow in our fear in God. And and they're not contrary. The fear of the Lord is wisdom, is to turn away from evil. And so we should want to fear and reverence the God that we love and have confidence in at the same time. Likewise, we saw the importance of believers interceding for sinners in this world. We'll see that again in our text this morning. That God would show uh, the same mercy and the same grace that he has undeservedly given to us. That's what I'm doing now in my prayer. You probably notice in my pastoral prayer, I'm praying for the nation. I'm praying for the church. Because I see that, that important aspect of intercession that, that the Apostle Paul says we're all to do now, right? There was, a, there was a time when God had chosen intercessors like Abraham, like Moses. But now we're all that intercessor. We all have access. We don't have to go through uh, another man or through sacrifices. Every one of us, everyone, every believer should be interceding for their loved ones, interceding uh, for their uh, friends and family and even for the world. That God's mercy and grace would be powerful and that God would visit us again with revival. And we saw how powerful God's grace is when we saw the family of Lot, think of it, and all their corruption and all of their uh, uh, sin, yet they were not cast off by God. They were not accursed by God. God used them to bring our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. It's astonishing, isn't it? That Jesus Christ came His humanity, his human nature from Ruth, who received her human nature from the incestual relationship of Lot and his oldest daughter. God never casts off anyone. God never uh, makes anyone somebody that they can't be saved. If you believe in Christ, if you turn to him, you can be saved. Now, of course, God has his elect and so forth, but that's his business. As long as you breathe, you can Turn to Christ as far as nothing stopping you except your own sin. And we believe that in the Reformed faith. We believe that when someone doesn't turn to Christ, it's not that God made them. It's that they did not turn when they should turn, when they know to turn. And God has to give the grace to turn any of us to him. And we see that God offers salvation in Christ to all. And so do we. And so... This morning, I want to notice, we're going to see that it's kind of an unusual chapter. I wasn't able to make an outline work, so I'm going to try to do something a little different. I tried several times. It's, it's kind of like, why is this chapter here? Right? We've, we've been building up in Abraham's life. We've got the covenant. We get the circumcision. We get that, it's, oh, it's from Abraham and Sarah's body. All that's happening. We've dealt with Lot. We've finished up his story. 
Sodom and Gomorrah have experienced judgment. We should expect the next chapter to be the birth of Isaac. And chapter 21 is. But chapter 20 sits in between. What's going on here? I hope to show you as we get into the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word again. Bless it to us. Help us to benefit from it. Help us to humble ourselves before it. And help us to substitute nothing for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 20. This is God's holy and perfect word. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south, and he dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and he stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and he said to him, indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman's Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you. From sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told them all these things in their hearing, and the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in mind that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on the account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, see, My land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, his female servants. And then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning. Where do we start with this text? There's a couple of themes that we see in the text that I had at one time as points that I just got rid of because I couldn't make it work. So I'm probably going to follow those themes through. And, And one of them is the fear of God and the fear of man. You see both of them operating in this text, and you see the uh, deletory effects of 
the fear of man, even as you see the good benefits of the fear of God. Abimelech is really the, the noble person in this story. Do you notice that? Abimelech, the heathen king. He is the one who does well. He is the one who does right. Abraham comes off as somewhat of a scoundrel, somewhat of a self-interested coward. Uh, commentators are not very um, nice to Abraham, and rightly so. He should be rebuked. By the way, um, a couple of things that maybe just mark, remark textually. At the end of verse 16 where it says, thus she was rebuked, almost all the other English translations say, thus she was vindicated. And the word can go either direction. And I think it's in the context that really is the way it should be translated with the ESV, the NAS, and all the rest. Thus she was vindicated. And I want to come back to that. What is going on? In this text, well, first of all, Abraham goes to Gerar. Gerar is in modern day, basically where the Gaza Strip is. It's the Philistine coast uh, of the Mediterranean Sea, the southwestern part of Israel, in Gaza Strip today. It's Philistine territory. Gerar is a Philistine city, and Abimelech is a Philistine king. Phoenicians, we would know them as. And Abraham goes and moves from Mamre, which he's been for a number of years, to Gerar. We don't know why. Some think because he's about, you know, 20-some miles away from Sodom and Gomorrah, could see the smoke of the furnace coming up, and that salt and sulfur air causes many places to be evacuated uh, for a long time. So it could be that he leaves because it just got more uh, uh, difficult in that region because of God's judgment. But whatever the case, when he gets to Gerar... He says of Sarah, she's my sister. The same thing he did in chapter 12 when they went down into Egypt, if you remember. And it causes some scholars, some of the critical scholars, to say, well, this is just a rehashing of the same tale. It's not a different event. And, you know, they're always changing the scriptures according to the different redactions that take place over centuries and all that stuff. Uh, And, you know, part of the reason that they dismiss it is that Sarah is probably 89 years old at this point. All right, because she has Isaac when she's 90, and she has Isaac about a year from now. We, know, we saw back in uh, a previous chapter that this time next year, Sarah is going to have a son. And so this is probably maybe a, you know, a month after that, so it's you know, 11 months. Sarah's got to conceive soon. And that's the great threat that is in this text, because Sarah is taken into a man's harem. And really, salvation is at risk. Because if If the Savior doesn't come from Abraham and Sarah's body, then God's word falls to the ground because God said it would. And Abraham is allowing this to happen, in fact, even making it happen. Here's the answer to the text. First of all, Sarah is 89 years old, and yet Abraham lives at this time to be 175. And Isaac lives to be 180, Sarah and Abraham's son. And Abraham's father was 205. So all that tells us is that the life expectancy is about double at this time for everybody. Which means that the aging process would be slower. I believe that Sarah would have looked probably like a woman in her late 40s or early 50s. Uh, and we know that women can be very beautiful and stunning in their, even in their late 40s and early 50s. I'm married to one. <laughs> so I know that's the case. But also, the text doesn't say that this time Abraham does this because of Sarah's great beauty. It did say that when they went down into Egypt. It just says, he says, she is my sister. 
and Abimelech took her. Abimelech could have taken her, and some uh, think that this is the case, because Abraham says she's my sister and Abraham's a powerful chieftain moving into this area and Gerar wants an alliance. And so he takes and exercises his right as a heathen king in that time and he adds Sarah to his harem. Literally because Abraham said it. If Abraham wouldn't have said it, it wouldn't have happened. Now either way, that is the case. Because it turns out that Abimelech, who Abraham thought was such a rotten person in this land, in this city, that Abraham thought was such a terrible place, is actually quite a God-fearing place. Quite, uh, indeed, by the common grace of God, a much better place than Abimelech uh, said it was. So uh, that dispenses with some of the criticism of the text. But um, Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem. All right? And we don't know how long this happens. By the end of the chapter, did you pick up on it? Abraham prays to God, verse 17, for Abimelech and his wife and his female servants, and then they bore children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs. Now, that, that's going to take a little bit of time for that to be apparent, right? I mean, it couldn't just be one night, and, you know, they were all kept from having babies for one night. Um, actually, I think the text isn't really talking about bearing children on the part of women. I think it's talking about intimacy. And I can show that to you. And some of the commentators, and Calvin even goes there, that that's the, in other words, what is happening is God is preventing, for whatever reason, Abimelech to be intimate with his wives so they can't bear children and he can't beget children. The word means both. In fact, if you look at verse 17, notice, it says God healed Abimelech and his wife and his female servants. He healed Abimelech. And then they, masculine, third person masculine, they bore or beget. It's the same word. Men beget, women bear. But it can be, it's the same word. So then they could beget children. And literally, it's not the Lord had closed up the wombs, but the Lord restrained or kept away from. It's the same word when Jeremiah is kept away from the temple, when David is kept away from Israel by Saul. God literally keeps away the wombs. He keeps away their intimacy. So they weren't able to be... That would make it so that the text could have happened in just you know, a couple of days or even a couple of weeks. And that would make sense because they would be aware of that uh, rather than uh, the closing up the womb. So again, there's some, some of these things I think are, are cleared up. But I don't think that this is more than you know, a couple of weeks at the most, maybe just a few days, that Sarah is in the custody of Abimelech. She's been made a part of his harem. All right, and so that's the really dangerous thing in this text. That's when God comes to Abimelech by night in a dream because Abraham is not doing his duty. He's lying in the sense that he's dissembling. He's hiding the fact that he's married. He's doing it on purpose. He's deceiving because, again, he's worried for his life. And we see that when he gives his reasons for what he did. Verse 11. Abimelech said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. For some reason, whether it's still her beauty or something else, Abraham is afraid. And so she, he tells her, say that you're my sister because then they don't kill me. It's all for Abraham's benefit. You can see this. He's putting his wife in a place where she can be uh, sinned against sexually. The same thing Lot did. Same thing Lot did with his daughters. Sure, I'll, I'll send my daughters out to you. It's not a whole lot different. 
Abraham doing this for himself, not concerned about Sarah. She's sitting in that harem. She doesn't know when she's going to be called. And then she's going to be an adulteress. And then what happens to the seed? And Abraham has done all this. And he's not concerned. And again, it went on for a certain amount of time. Remember last time, Pharaoh gave Abraham all this treasure, male and female servants and, and wealth and treasure and property because, and, and animals. Why? Because that was the bride price. He was purchasing Sarah for his bride. At least he thought. And Abraham took it and left it. And then Pharaoh throws him out of the country when he finds out, if you remember. Throws him out of the country. lets him keep everything. That's not what happens here. I want, I want to notice the godliness of Abimelech. This heathen king. Notice, even after he finds out what happens, what's he say to Abraham in verse 15? See, my land is before you. Dwell wherever you please. This man has a lot of God's common grace in him. First of all, he says to God, will you destroy a righteous nation also? Isn't that what Abram prayed at the end of chapter 18? Lord, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Who's more like the godly man here in this text? It's Abimelech. He did not intend to. He did not mean to commit adultery. He thought this was a single woman. And he thought he was exercising his right as a king in those days. God isn't commenting on the the harem that he has. And that that obviously is a corruption of marriage. In their day, everyone accepted that. God is just calling upon him because he's taken another man's wife. It's the sin of adultery. And Abimelech recognizes that that's an evil thing. I didn't mean to do that. It's funny, but, you know, the the unbelieving world does still have a moral compass. They still know right from wrong. Every culture does. In every culture, nobody wants to be a thief. Nobody wants to be known as a liar. Nobody wants to be an adulterer, someone who takes someone else's wife. This is how God restrains sin in the world. That he maintains the moral compass of men. That no person, no pagan, no false believer in, in false gods, nobody descends to the point of animal nature. Everyone is still moral at some level, right? Even Stalin. You know, at some level you recognize and you, and you even justify yourself. Well, the reason I'm doing this is for a good purpose. People are always doing that. Romans chapter 2. We justify ourselves. But what I want you to notice is God does that. It's God's work. We talk, talk about the law in theology, and there, Calvin talks about the third use of the law, which is the evangelical use that teaches us how to please God. Luther talked about the first use of the law, which convicts us of our sin, and we have to flee to Christ. These are good things that the law does. But there's a third thing that the law does that is very good, that we take for granted every day. And that is what sometimes is called the second use. The law restrains evil in the world. God's law is never completely eradicated from anyone's heart. It restrains evil. Why does Abimelech plead with God he hasn't done this thing because he knows adultery is wrong? In any society, that's the case, that people can't just go up and take a man's wife. You know, even where that would be allowed, it's because, well, that's a slave or somehow that's a lower person. You know, that things like that. There's always a reason because we know that this is wrong inherently. This is God's restraining sin in the world. Notice it. In verse 6, so oftentimes I'll get asked, you know, well, if God is good, why is there sin? Why is there evil? You know, that's easy. Uh, We're sinners and God lets us live. That's why there's evil. The real question is, why isn't there more? Why isn't there a lot more? Why Why is it that we can walk down the street basically in our towns? I'm sure you all can, right? Not worry about somebody killing you and taking your stuff. 
For the most part, we don't think about things like that. And that's because, notice it in verse 6. God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you did this in your integrity of your heart. You didn't know you were committing adultery. But notice the last part. For I also withheld you from sinning against me, and I did not let you touch her. God withheld sin. How many times does God do that? How many times has God done that in your life and you don't even know it? God withheld people from sinning against you, hurting you. God does this in the world. Calvin calls it God's preventing grace. It's with everyone. God prevents us from doing the things that we would do. Sometimes through crazy circumstances, right? Sometimes all kind of things that God prevents you from doing. You know, you're, you were going to go and, and get drunk, but your car wouldn't start. And you weren't able to do that. How many times have we intended sin and God prevented it through something? God prevents sin in the world. And nobody is without that preventing grace. Notice how God speaks to a a pagan. God revealed himself to Abimelech in a dream. That's not the only time in Scripture. In fact, we're going to see this multiple times in the Scriptures. Laban later is going to be visited by God in a dream. When he's considering what to do to Jacob. And then Pharaoh is going to be visited by God and given a dream and told how to save the world. And Joseph interprets it. Nebuchadnezzar is spoken to by God in a dream. God's word sometimes comes to pagan. God spoke to Cain. And in fact, in Pharaoh, uh, Josiah, good King Josiah, my favorite king, is actually killed because it says in 2 Chronicles 35, 22, he did not heed the words of Pharaoh Necho from the mouth of God. You know, if God's people are not going to do right, if God's people are not going to uphold his word, then God's going to speak through a pagan. He even spoke through a donkey once. He doesn't need us. It's a great privilege to be given his word, to stand for his word. And that's what Abraham should be doing in the land, not worried about himself, not hiding his marriage to protect himself, to put his wife in great danger. And Abimelech recognizes that, and that's when he puts Abraham on trial. Notice it in verse 9. I love verse 8. It's, a, it's one of Scripture's understatements. After the dream where God says to Abimelech, you're a dead man, it says, and he got up very early in the morning. Yeah, betcha he did. And when he told his servants, but notice this, they all were very much afraid. Abram doesn't think there's fear of God in this place. They were all very much afraid. It's Abram who's fearing men. He's afraid they're going to kill him. And he's acting out of the fear of men and it's leading him into sin. Abimelech acts out of the fear of God. And it leads him into obeying and turning away from sin. I want you to notice where he... He interrogates Abraham in verse 9. Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? In what? In pretending like your wife's merely your sister. How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom? Abimelech recognizes that as he goes, so goes the nation. Right? That's true for us too, as scary as that is. You know, we are responsible for our leaders. We can't wash our hands of them. This is our country, and they're leading us. And when they do bad things, you know, it's, it's not just something to make a stupid meme on Facebook and laugh at it. God's judgment falls on nations. And when our nation does things that's wicked, we should be crying out to God. 
Abimelech recognizes that you've brought on my kingdom. If I commit adultery, my kingdom is going to be judged. And notice he calls adultery a great sin. You've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. And then he says this, you've done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Abram's the man of God. Abraham is in the position of the Messiah's placeholder. He is the Messiah in a sense. Uh, uh, the Messiah that's, you know, uh, Jesus is in his loins and he's going to bring Jesus. But until then, he emblematically, symbolically shows forth the Messiah. You have to go to Abraham if you want to know the Lord. He's the one that God has called. And yet Abraham is doing things that ought not to be done. That a pagan king knows you ought not to do this. And then amazingly, he shows his justice in verse 10. Then Abimelech, I mean, he's the king. He's just been treated this way. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? In other words, he gives the accused an ability and the right to defend himself. He literally puts him on the stand and say, all right, you have your say now. Rather than just kill him or throw him in prison, he's the king. Explain yourself, Abraham. And what does Abraham do at this point? Let's notice Abraham's reasons. Because I thought, I thought, no evidence, no reason given. Abraham just prejudged the whole nation as wicked and completely without fear. The very thing that he did not do to Sodom and Gomorrah. When he pled with God, if there be only 50, what if there be only 40, 30, 20, 10? Now he's prejudged an entire city as there's none. And we got to do this to save my life. Because I thought... Surely the fear of God is not in this place. And then what will happen? Then they're going to do evil openly. That's what happens when you don't fear God. The fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. So this is why I did this. But by the way, there's some truth in it. She is kind to my sister. I mean, how about that for an answer? And then, oh, and also I kind of do this thing all the time. I tell her to do this all the time, right? So this, this is his reasons. I prejudged you. There's some technical truth in what I said. And I do it all the time. What does Abimelech do? And why does he do it? Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. This is the price, not of a bride, but this is restitution because of what he did. He recognizes, and of course God even acknowledged that he didn't try to commit adultery, but he took another man's wife. And he shouldn't have done that. And he made Sarah look like an adulteress, and he made Abraham as well, even though, again, he says, she herself said, yeah, he's my brother. Why didn't she say, and my husband, you can't take me? Because Abraham told her not to. Abraham's much more to blame, but she shouldn't have gone along with it. I mean, you know that, ladies. If your husband tells you to sin, you have to say no. She shouldn't have gone along with it. But Abraham is more to blame. He's using his position as her head, telling her to do this. And again, for his own benefit. But it's Abimelech who restores her honor. It's Abimelech who who vindicates her, not Abraham, not the placeholder of the Messiah. And I think in this aspect, we're seeing the sinfulness and frailness of Abraham and Sarah. They committed this sin in chapter 12 when they were brand new believers. And it's 25 years later. And they're still sinning like this. Anybody identify with that? 
We, we, we have to grow in grace if we're Christians, right? We have to. But growth is like this, you know? It's sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back instead of two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes we backslide and we do things. And we are always prone to any sin but for the grace of God. We've got to recognize that. I don't know if Abraham, you know, is... is getting proud or whatever, but for whatever reason, he does this again. He, he doesn't see how wrong it is. His son's going to do the same thing. He learned from his father. That's what happens. I've said that before. We, we, we have great authority and, and great privilege in being able to teach our children about the Lord. God uses that to save children, no doubt about it. But when we show them how to sin, guess what they're going to do? You know, my dad used to say to me, do as I say. Not as I do when he would do something wrong. But I find myself doing what as he did and not as he said. It's easy to know what's right. It's hard to do it. Abraham does not come off well. Jameson Fawcett Brown, one of the commentaries I use, says this. What a humiliating plight does the patriarch now appear. He is a servant of the true God rebuked by a heathen prince. Who would not rather be in the place of Abimelech than of the sadly offending a patriarch? Sadly offending. Calvin says Abraham was worthy of censure because through fear he had submitted and so far as he was concerned to the prostitution of his wife. Calvin always pulls his punches. When he ought to have been courageous and resolute in vindicating the honor of his, of his wife no matter what might threaten him. He doesn't. He, he puts her on the altar. And Matthew Henry notices this uncharitableness that he shows, this censoriousness as he see, thinks they're all without fear of God. Matthew Henry says men would not do ill if they did not first think ill. When we prejudge somebody as you know, being accursed, then it doesn't matter what we do to them. Then it's okay to lie to them, deceive them, to use them. And we can never do that. As I've mentioned to you, yes, God has his reprobate and God has his elect. And that's not our business. Our business is the gospel to every creature as long as they breathe. Right? As far as we're concerned, they can still be saved. As far as their ability in the natural, yes, they could say yes to Jesus. It's because they won't. It's the will. It's the heart that keeps them from it. But of course they have the ability to say, yes, I'm a sinner. And yes, I believe. They don't because they don't want to. And so were we. We didn't because we didn't want to. And God changed our heart. I don't know where Abimelech is in the scheme of things. But he is the one who vindicates Sarah. The very thing that Abraham should have done. He vindicates her. And again, Abraham is not showing himself to be able or to be the one to, to uh, um, save and, and to bless his wife Sarah. But th- there's something bigger going on here. This isn't about Abraham and Sarah. In Sarah is the church. In Abraham is the Messiah. All right? Now, Abraham is a failure, and so a uh, sinner, so it's, you know, he fails. And he doesn't defend her the way he should. And God uses here a pagan king to, to show us that it is God's grace alone. And it's not by Abraham's goodness that the seed is going to come and that the promise is going to be kept. But Abraham is uh, still in that place of the Messiah, which is why when God rebukes Abimelech, as rotten as Abraham is in this text, Abimelech has to go to Abraham to get Abraham to pray for him, and then he'll be forgiven. Do you see that? 
Because Abraham, again, is the type of Messiah, and God maintains that, not Abraham. Now, therefore, verse 7, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Now God is speaking to Abraham in his office, not in his person. In his person, not so good right here. But he's still the prophet. He's still the placeholder of the Messiah. And therefore, for anyone to come to God, it has to be through his intercession. He is a type of Christ interceding for the church. And so Abraham is the intercessor, just as Moses is the intercessor when God says, let me alone and I'll destroy them. Just as Job is the intercessor, even after God rebukes him, then he says to his three friends, if you want to be restored, have Job pray for you. Job is, again, that type of intercessor that Abraham is here. Now it's Jesus. It's been fulfilled. He is the one who intercedes for us, which is why we can all be intercessors. But what I want you to recognize again is that in Sarah's vindication is the guaranteed vindication of the church. In Sarah's vindication is your vindication. And God will do it through amazing means, through a pagan king doing what Abraham should have done. I think that's the message of this text. I think that's why it's here, to show us that it's God who brings the Messiah. When Abraham and Sarah would have messed it up, she would have been in that pagan harem and no Messiah. And God showing us again that he will vindicate his church. No matter how bad, no matter how rotten we are. Notice again verse 16. Then, then to Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this is a covering before you and before all. In other words, I've not done anything to you. I'm testifying to that. Your honor has not been broached. You've not been an adulterous woman. But it's, Ab- it's Abimelech who pays for that. And it's Jesus who pays for the honor of the church. The church comes down out of heaven, beloved. If it was, if it came down out of heaven the way it really is, I mean, church is us, right? But we're we're described as the bride of Christ. And the bride is covered in filth in and of herself. She's like like, um, the the high priest in filthy rags in the book of Zechariah. Joshua, the high priest. That's the church in and of herself, covered in filth. And yet God pays the price. Christ pays the price and vindicates her with his blood. And then we see in Revelation chapter 21, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. That's what this text is about. When Sarah is vindicated, it is God's guarantee that you are vindicated. You're vindicated in Christ and by the blood that he paid. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the vindication of Sarah. For it is our vindication. And it wasn't paid in money or male and female servants. It was paid with the precious blood of Christ who died in our place so that we could be the glorious and beautiful bride. Abraham was not able to do that, Lord God. He failed his wife. But you did it, Lord God. And all of us men who are husbands are not able to love our wives as we should. But we would ask you to bless them anyway. And help husbands and wives to love one another. But help all of us, Lord God, to look to your grace alone for any beauty, for any goodness we have. We would have been sold into slavery as adulterers. But you rescued us. And you made us the pure virgin bride 
of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name.